And we are live. Welcome to the Industry 4.0 Community Podcast, hosted by 4.0 Solutions for Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds, it's good to be back. Um, I hope everyone had a wonderful Labor Day uh, weekend. We made the decision over Labor Day weekend not to uh, not to do the podcast. We didn't want anyone taking you know time away from the holiday to enjoy the podcast. So um, we decided to um, not do one. And I think we'll probably do that again uh, for other holidays in the future. Um, as a quick reminder, the format of the podcast has changed. I can no longer see the comments unless Josh puts them up uh, in the bar. So the only comments I'm going to see are the ones that he wants me to see um, because we're simulcasting on YouTube, on LinkedIn. Uh, and then obviously, if you guys watch uh, or you listen on Apple Podcasts or one of your podcast apps, um, which right now we're about equally split up. Uh, one third, one third, one third. So if you see, if we do a thousand views on the podcast on YouTube, we're generally doing about 3000 uh, total, a thousand on the podcast apps, a thousand on LinkedIn and a thousand uh, on YouTube. But uh, just as a quick reminder, I won't see your comments unless Josh pops them up here. Um, this week, the subject this week is um, no, <laughs> security is not your primary concern. And it, it's a really, it's amazing to me Um how it's amazing to me that we're still having this debate. I have to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to get to it here in a second, but um, there was a podcast uh, that we did a while back and there was a link I shared um, in when, in one of our mentorship classes, we went over um, an article in automation.com that was three ways manufacturers can embrace industry 4.0. Josh will include the link in the chat here when I'm talking about it. Um, but there was a one of the pillars that they put in there was security. And while security is obviously important, it is not your primary concern, and it is most certainly not one of your top three concerns. But I'll, I'll get to my argument there in a couple of minutes. So a couple of quick announcements. Um, for those of you who are in the MES boot camp, our first session is this Saturday, September 17th. We have over 130 signed up participants. Um, this week, we're going to be doing the charter. We will be doing our um, entity relational uh, relational diagram uh, for the MES backend. In SQL, we'll be doing some Python functions for interacting with uh, that backend. Uh, but for those of you that don't know about MES Bootcamp, in, that, in Bootcamp, we're going to show you how to build uh, your own core MES solution using Python, um, SQL, and uh, Ignition as the IoT platform on top. Ignition's not the important part. We're just picking Ignition. We could have used frameworks. We could have used uh, any other platform, but we're using Ignition just because most of our audience has has gone through Ignition training, and um, and so they'll be familiar with the designer. That's really the only reason we're using it. It'll be it's Ignition's not the important part here. Uh, so, but if you guys are interested in MES bootcamp, you can go to iot.university forward slash MES hyphen bootcamp. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody who wants to be in the bootcamp is signed up, but if you, if you're still interested, you can, a couple of questions people have asked like, Hey, if I can't do it now, can I do it later? Yes. 
um, you will be able to uh, buy the boot camp later. All the videos every um, is are going to be available on IoT.University. I highly recommend you do it live. That way you can ask questions and I can answer them in real time. Um, but yeah, people are going to be able to get the boot camp later. Um, they'll obviously have to pay a premium for it so that they're um, they're not getting a better deal than the people who have helped fund this venture. This is the biggest thing that we've attempted to do. I will be teaching all the classes um, and I'm pretty super, super excited about it. Um, ICC's next week for those of you who, uh, I'll be traveling out. I, I, they still haven't given my travel confirmations yet, but, um, I'm traveling out, I think to Folsom on Tuesday morning. Um, and my goal was to go in and get out in the same day, but I, I might stay overnight. I know they got me a room, uh, at the Lake Natoma Inn, which is where we normally stay across from the fat rabbit in down in historic Folsom. I know my whole team will be there. Uh, I've got probably half dozen people I'm going to be meeting with to have beers with and stuff. But if you want to meet up, have a conversation, um, please send me a message. Um, all right. With that, Josh, are there any questions in the chat that I need to uh, address right away before? Holy. Let me see here. Um, oh, Dan Riken's back. Welcome, Dan. And we have 148 in the MES boot camp. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, hey, Dr. Riken, it's good to have you back, brother. Um, and, uh, yeah, Dan, Dan Riken's son is in the house. Dan, Dan, for those of you who don't know, Dan Riken, um, has a, took a new position and he's been training up really, you know, a new leadership position in industry 4.0 and he's been training up. So, uh, it's good to have him back on the podcast. All right, let's talk about security. All right. So there was a discussion in, uh, discord, um, in mid-August, so I think in the in the August mentorship class, okay, um, there was an article I shared from Automation.com from the month of July, which was called Three Ways Manufacturers Can Embrace Industry 4.0." And in that session, I was talking about. I said, "Listen, there's a. I like this article. They touch on some really good things, but there are some pretty serious flaws." in their premises here and that is cybersecurity. so let me start with um so some of my beliefs about security okay um there is no such thing as security okay you are only as secure as the smartest person who wants to get access to your data anybody who works in security will tell you that it's really just about making the level of effort for the person who wants to get to you, making that level of effort, uh, put enough barriers in place to get them to not, um, for them to say it's not worth it, okay? So number one, there is no such thing as security, okay? Just like in your own home, if somebody wants to get into your house, they're getting into your house. I mean, it's just the, the idea that we think our front doors are you know, the police prove all the time our front doors are not secure. They're not really protecting us, okay? Uh, which is why the idea that we would say, hey, let's, you know, individuals can't protect themselves is preposterous, right? There's no such thing as security. In data, it's the same concept. And we used to do this exercise where, you know, we would bring really smart hackers with us to companies. And then we would challenge, you know, I, I, it was amazing to me how ignorant 
chief executives are to what security actually is. You know, we'd ask them to show us their security policies. We'd ask the chief technical officer or the chief information officer to show us how what IT security practices were, right? And one of the things that always jumped out at us was their their security practices aren't going to keep us, me, from getting to what I want to get to. Let's say I wanted to access your PLC or um, I wanted to hack somebody's email. Um, there's nothing that stopped me from doing it. Um, now, granted, I have hacking skills that the average person doesn't have, but there were other engineers we bring in who had absolutely no problem um, getting to the data and information, the file shares, the um, the NAS drives that we we wanted to get to. There was really no no problem. I mean, absent a, a full blown air gap, okay, absent a, a full blown air gap which isn't even still totally secure because all, you know, you're, you can implement all the security you want. And then, uh, and then you just use the, uh, the handgun approach of overcoming security. And that is you put the handgun to somebody's head and you say, type in your password, you know? Um, so there's no such thing as security. And so one of the challenges that you face in digital transformation and everybody who's watching here, anyone who's involved in industry 4.0, anyone who's involved in trying to, make non-digital companies digital companies has run into one of these barriers in the name of security okay we can't do that because our security policy says we can't or we we can't get that virtual machine spun up or that piece of software installed on this machine because it takes um you know it takes uh we have to check off a bunch of security boxes that don't even actually make us secure to begin with there's a there's a huge thing in industry 4.0 that most people don't talk about when it comes to security and that is opportunity cost in the in the name of security how much money we're losing in innovation and advancement and in our lack of unlocking potential from the plant floor in the name of security okay now i've been doing this a very long time okay i've been um, i'm 24 years into my career uh i've been working on bleeding edge projects most of my career, I mean, 20 years for sure. Um, and I have never seen a major security breach that was not caused from the inside. Okay, that is some idiot plugging a fob, uh, a fob into the wrong USB port, opening attachment in an email, you're right, you know, ID10T fault, we called those ID10T. If you want to write them down, it says it spells idiot, right? But over the radio, you don't say idiot. Over the radio, you say ID10T, right? Um, every major security breach that I ever saw came from the inside, right? That all the all the layers of security that we put into organizations, especially when we look at things like uh, DMZs, right? This is one of my biggest fucking pet peeves in the entire world. You know, a DMZ with BombGar for remote access to the plant floor is the Pig, biggest piece of garbage solution workaround end around that I've ever seen. And I want somebody, I want any developer, I want any engineer, controls engineer, developer to tell me, get on here and advocate for why the DMZ is important, number one. And number two, a, a, 
the access, the, the remote access you get to the plant floor through a DMZ is even effective at all. It's not. I mean, I can't tell you how the number of projects that we have that we've had that have gone over budget because of insufficient remote access through the DMZ through tools like Bombgar. Okay. Uh, which is basically using a jump server to, you know, basically I'm VNCing into a jump server, right? That has physical access to the plant floor. It's, it's useless. Okay. You can't do any type of real development through that type of architecture to the point where in our statements of work, uh, we, we, we state that uh, we don't use that type of remote access. In, in most cases, what we're doing is we are talking our clients into allowing us to put our own virtual private network within their infrastructure and um, uh, just for our own development. And, you know, sometimes they're getting it approved by IT. I'd say most of the time they're getting some stakeholder in IT to approve it. Um, and sometimes they're not. You know, I, I would say probably 80% of the time they're getting it approved uh, with significant limitations. But whenever they have the IT department come in and have a conversation with us about, you know, why it is you can't do something because of security reasons, the first thing that I say is, well, let me use this example. Um, Cheryl's going to be mad at me for using this analogy. Uh, I was just saying this the other day. Uh, DMC, Cherubin, it's DMZ, uh, demilitarized zone. Yep. Um, when was the last time you had an ID10 default? Uh, it's better to fight a war of attrition and make it annoying than to build a difficult, intricate firewall. Um, right now, do you know how rare it is for a child to get kidnapped? But if you ask, if you ask the average parent, like what's the biggest risk they have for their child? you know, they're going to say that their biggest fear is going to be something like their kid getting kidnapped while they're playing in the front lawn. Like if you look today, me growing up, you know, all you Gen, Gen Xers out there, we used to, I would leave my house at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, I'd come back for lunch and then I would come back for dinner. Um, and then I would come back as soon as the street light turned on and, and I grew up in the country, but in the trailer park I grew up in, we actually had a street light, a street lamp. So as soon as the light got dark enough, when that light came on and we saw it, all the kids in the trailer park knew that they had to go back to uh, home, right? Gen, Gen Xers, if you're a Gen Xer, right? That's the way you came up. Like your parents saw you in the summertime. They saw you four times a day and you went three or four hours, five hours uninterrupted without your parents knowing anywhere where you were, okay? You don't see that today at all, and you wonder why, right? Is it because we just have this explosion of pedophiles and people snatching kids up off the street? No, there aren't more people kidnapping kids today than there were in the 1980s. There are fewer, okay? There are fewer incidents, and it's not because of access. It's fewer incidents, rates per capita, okay? This is part of the violent crime drop that we've had over time. But if you ask people, is it more dangerous today? Is it more dangerous today than it was when we were coming up? They would say yes. And what's changed? It's really the perception, right? We shine a light on it. Every time that there's a kid who gets snatched up or attempted to get snatched up, which is a horrible thing, it's a terrible thing, right? We 
every parent believes, well, what we have to do is just never, ever allow my child outside in the front yard without me standing right next to them, right? We never weigh the cost of that, right? Their kid doesn't learn any independence. Their kid doesn't learn how to interact with their peers without adults manipulating the interactions. I mean, we no, no one talks about the negative impacts of standing next to a child helicoptering 24 hours a day, seven days a week because of the minuscule risk that they might get snatched up by some kidnapper. Okay. That is the, that is the metaphorical equivalent to what we see within manufacturing IT departments today. It's, it's literally the same equivalent. We, we put in unbelievable hurdles. In fact, we, we damage our organizations through opportunity cost by, uh, be, uh, uh, because of the minuscule fear that some bad actor is going to do something horrible to us. The minuscule fear. And here's my point. My organization is wide open. Okay. I practice what I preach in terms of security policies. Now I know the number of um, bots out there that are, you know, pinging every port on our, on our public IPs. I know, I know the number of Russian hackers out there that are just scanning the internet for stupid people who use dumb passwords that use that don't do software updates, right? I know the number, we see it. We use some AI software to basically just keep us informed about the number of bad actors out there who are trying to, you know, see if we're dumb. That's basically what they're checking. They're checking to see, are you stupid? Okay. Um, we've never been hacked. I mean, everything's public, you know, um, you know, all of our personal stuff is none of our clients stuff is public. We, you know, we have, there are certain very specific it requirements we have to meet in terms of the way we handle our clients data. Okay. This is, this is how we handle, how we store their documents and we meet all those requirements. But when it comes to the way that we handle infrastructure for our own products and stuff, we, I practice what I preach. We use reasonable security measures, but we never, ever, ever sec use security as an excuse not to innovate. Never. In fact, that's a mandate from me as a chief executive. Tesla did the same thing. Amazon did the same thing. I just followed the best leaders out there in terms of the way that they approached security, which was reasonable, right? Mario says, this is what I call decision by fear and decision by courage. By fear, it usually ends up meaning procrastination. I would take it one step further, Mario, and say, by fear, it usually ends up meaning inaction. It's not just procrastination, it's inaction. And the opportunity cost is what ends up hurting the organization, not the security risk. Risk. What did we lose in potential opportunity or in potential efficiency gain? Okay. All right. So let me go to this, this thread here. Um, and then I'll expand on this. So Cheryl linked uh, an article in there, the article from automation.com. And it was three ways involve AI, networking, and cybersecurity. So it was the three ways manufacturers can embrace industry 4.0. 
You could use AI, you could use networking, you use cybersecurity. Walker generally agreed with their points on the first two, but not the third. And what I stated was, unless you're a legitimate high security infrastructure target, this doesn't apply. Don't use security as an excuse to do nothing. And, and every person on here, everyone who's watching the stream on LinkedIn, uh, everyone who's watching the stream on LinkedIn, on YouTube, or if you're listening later on, okay, every single one of you can tell me examples of um, security being, as, being, being used as an excuse to do nothing or to wait to do something. And very few of you are going to be able to use an give me an example of where security failed you. You're going to be very, you're going to be very, very hard pressed to show me the example of where security failed you. Okay. Now people in the security sphere are going to say, well, that's an example of security working, right? Um, no, I would disagree because at the same time we can easily measure organizations that drive their businesses off cliffs, cliffs because of lost because of the opportunity cost of not innovating their organization in the name of security. We can measure that. Okay. Like, try to go get your three-year-old kidnapped, and I mean this metaphorically. Like, go outside and literally try to get them kidnapped, right? And I'll bet you, you couldn't do it in seven days. Does that mean that there's no risk? Of course not. There's risk. But it doesn't mean that the risk is as high as people really, their fear convinces them it is. Okay, now that doesn't mean just let your three-year-old go wander around. That's not what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is reasonable security. Not, not security, which means I'm never going to let my kids wander around and explore the world and be more than 15 feet away from me. Let them develop as independent people. It's the same, it's the same thing in manufacturing when it comes, it's the psychology is the same in security in industry and the way that we approach protecting our children in our personal lives. The psychology is identical, identical. And who raises the best kids? The kids who grow the most? It's not the helicopter parents. And who raises, who develops the best industries? It's not the organizations that have ignorant CEOs who defer to the CTO whose only mandate, you know, no one ever got fired for picking Microsoft. So the CTO errs on the side of um, safety, security, and compliance no matter what the opportunity cost is. So Mike Cernow, who I respect greatly, he replied to, the, uh, to this post and he said, if the gist of Walker Reynolds' take on this article is, quote, not worry uh, if about cybersecurity unless you're some super priority critical infrastructure owner operator, then I completely disagree. This may not be the point he was making, as I wasn't in the mentorship call. So anyone can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. This can be a conversation though, because there may be a lot more I'm missing. So no, that it was definitely not my message. Okay, my message wasn't the only people who need to worry about cybersecurity are 
super priority critical infrastructure owner operators. No, my message is don't ever use security as a reason not to innovate. And by the way, that's, that's an epidemic in industry. It's an epidemic. And really, it starts at the top. And this goes back to one of my key points that I talk about. How does industry need to change? Who needs to be running the companies? It's not the MBAs. It's technologists. It's engineers. I mean, it's amazing to me just how technologically uh, illiterate most chief executives are. I mean, it's amazing to me. Okay. Uh, so Cheryl said, hey, thanks for the comment, Mike. I definitely a question I can add to his podcast agenda. It's worthy of elaboration. And then Mike, or then Watson, M.W. Watson followed up and said, uh, Cernow, Mike Cernow, like you, I didn't catch the mentorship call or comments, however, have heard the statement that cybersecurity is something for the critical infrastructure entities. Given the increase in ransomware attacks, all companies are vulnerable. Yes, all companies are vulnerable. No question. What I'm saying is, is that um, the TSA didn't make us safer. I mean, how many people know of people who accidentally brought a pocket knife onto a, uh, you know, got a pocket knife through security, right? And uh, by the way, all of you, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, it's theater. It, 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 the opportunity cost of that type of thing is um, I lose hours of time in travel, me personally. Okay. But when I fly private, when I fly on a, when I charter a jet, I don't lose any of that. I mean, I, you know, if I, if I can afford to fly private, then I literally am driven right up to the, to the jet which I've done, I've chartered jets to, you know, um, Louisville and, and, um, Atlanta. And, you know, you, you're literally driven right up to the jet. They look, there's a table there. They look in your bag real quick. You get on the plane, you fly away. You're, you're gone in 10 minutes. But if I'm flying commercial, me, a guy who charges $1,200 hour for my time, the, the two hours I spend, dealing with the TSA cost me $2,400. Me personally, it doesn't cost anybody else, cost me $2,400. That's how I justify chartering a jet. But I'm not any safer. You know, um, the Patriot Act is what made us safer, by the way. Um, that's my point. My point is, is security, security should never be a... Uh, an excuse for not innovating. That's my message. My message is, is that if what you say is that security needs our needs to be our number one priority, you are a fucking fool. You're a fool. And here's how you know. Okay. Go into any research and development lab. Go into any place where you haven't decided that you have minimum viable product or you're going to commercialize yet. Okay. Go into any environment. And what's the first thing that goes out the window while you're innovating. It's security. Because the primary the primary focus in innovation is enablement. Let's enable innovation. And we'll figure out security once we're ready to go to market. We don't start with security and then develop a product within our security guidelines. 
That isn't how research and development environments work. That isn't how that isn't if you go MVP, right? If you're trying to develop a minimum viable product, security is is not your number one concern. Capability, functionality, delivery on your goals. Then you figure out security. My argument, what I'm saying with industry is industry, the, the transformation between industry 3.0 and 4.0 is a journey that starts with groundbreaking innovation. It's not continuous improvement. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, new rules, new goals. And for organizations who want to digitally transform, they need to, they need to relax the, the security guidelines they put in place for the old rules and the old goals don't apply to the new rules and the new goals. Okay. So like if you look at the Purdue security model, right? Purdue University developed the Purdue security model for industry 3.0. And if you look at Purdue and you look at the way that ne they recommend networks be segmented, that you put a DMZ either between L2 and L3 or L3 and L4, that, that security recommendation is built for a client, uh, server client architecture. Servers high up the stack needing access down the stack. What I'm saying is the new rules are edge-driven report by exception, lightweight open architecture means, no, the smart thing on the plant floor only has got to talk out. So if all I got to do is talk out and I can't talk out through the DMZ, then why don't we change the rules? Because the DMZ exists under the assumption that something externally needs to be talking in. Because that was the architecture before TCP IP won the wars and everything was serial based in the late 80s and the 90s. That was the architecture. Okay, Josh, throw that comment back up again that you the last one you did. So we have a DMZ air gap strategy, but as a data engineer, it was not possible to write ETL against the SQL MES without being due home. So a DMZ is a fantasy we say we live by, but don't. Agreed. What he's saying there is because you couldn't go through the DMZ to do what he's talking about, they had to make an exception, which means once we made the exception, doesn't that really mean the rule's obsolete? It's not really a rule anymore. It's a guideline. But IT departments still treat these security practices and their policies as law and laws that justify inaction. Um, Andreas Backman followed up with, speaking of security, one thing that I've been thinking about is that if ultimately everything in your organization is connected to a broker cl cluster down to PLCs, probably via linked brokers, you could do quite a lot of damage from a single entry point. Um, speaking of security, one thing I've been thinking about, well, that operates under the assumption that none of the connections are certified, right? I mean, I, I hear what he's saying here, but again, that what that shows is a la um, a lack of understanding of the inherent security in the architecture. Um, each connection is certified. So, I mean, unless you could somehow cook the certificate process in this architecture. I don't know how you're, you're at risk. And then uh, ZDDHD said, from an Australian point of view, food and beverage is now considered critical infrastructure. I would argue that 
food and beverage is critical infrastructure for anyone. Um, it's misleading at the end of the day. Anything can be critical to someone or something. Coming from a small town, the meat work factory is critical infrastructure. If it goes, the town goes with it. At the end of the day, everyone, every plant is at risk. But do you need to be paranoid? No. You do need to consider the business's risk when selecting controls and countermeasures. I agree with the article linked by Cheryl stating a risk-based approach needs to be followed, cradle to the grave. Industry 4.0 in the UNS looks to me like a lot of re-architecturing. That's when you need to take on cybersecurity from day one. It really is an important, it's an opportunity to implement some best practices. Agreed 100%. What I'm saying is, is that you don't start with cybersecurity and then design your architecture. You start with your architecture and then figure out how to secure it. Why? Because we're innovating. Right? I mean, why is it that Ford and General Motors don't use the same methodology that Tesla uses to connect to their cars over the air, OTA? Why don't they use the same mechanism? Why is it that at Ford and GM, you the production line, the business network, the... Um, the software development partners, okay? So that is the partners who develop like CarPlay and that kind of stuff. Um, and the cars themselves, the, the, the new cars that are connected OTA are not integrated together at all times, but they are at Tesla. It's really quite simple. General Motors and Ford are hamstrung by rules they created in the past. And Tesla started with a blank slate. What legacy organizations have to figure out is how to how to uh, act like they're starting with a blank slate without starting with a blank slate. And that requires a culture of innovation. So here's here's the solution. Okay. So everyone's gonna say, hey Walker, you bitching and moaning. What's the solution? I'm glad you asked. All right. Well, number one, it starts with Across the board, the chief executives at all these major industrial companies need to become, you need to be replacing the MBAs with technologists, okay? Even if it's a technologist, an engineer, okay? A manufacturing engineer, controls engineer, software developer, computer scientist, with or without MBAs. You're, the leader of your organization needs to be a technologist. Okay. Someone who's fluent in security risk or in risk, reward, innovation, opportunity cost. Okay. Uh, someone who can quickly learn the potential of technology. That's the first step. And then the first thing that they need to implement is they need to go to their chief technical officer and say, our IT department going forward is going to be a service organization. We are going to enable innovation first and figure out security second. You're gonna change the mindset from security and compliance first and service once we decide it's valuable second. You go service first, security and compliance second. 
Those are your steps. Now, how many people here, how many of the in the audience work for companies that we would you would say are run by technologists who say that our IT groups are service organizations first and security and compliance second? And the answer is basically none of you. Okay, and how, here's how I know. Part of the digital transformation maturity assessment process is evaluating IT. One of the 10 pillars is IT. And when you look at the score on a scale of one to five, with one being wholly industry 3.0 and five being industry wholly industry 4.0, the average IT department score is 2.7 or something. They're less than midway to industry 4.0. And if you look at when the matrix, what we describe a one is, it means that their philosophy is this, and three means their philosophy is that, and five means their philosophy is this, which is the service organization piece, security and compliance second, data enablement's a priority. The average score is under the three mark, okay, in IT. And we're talking thousands of companies, okay? Um, uh, to finish ZDHD's comment, he said, if you went in with the mindset of what happens if all of it was compromised, PLC, HMI, broker, SCADA, UNS, MES, ERP is toast, how to recover. If you've got an actionable plan for that, you're probably ahead of most of the pack. I would say in the United States, I don't know how it is in Australia, um, completely, but in the U S, uh, everyone's got a DR strategy, a disaster recovery strategy. And everyone has a security mitigate, mitigation strategy. Okay. Um, again, but the point is, is, is the risk, you know, you talk about ransomware attacks and that kind of stuff. They're real. Okay. Just like kids getting snatched off the street is real. But is the risk as high as you think it is? Is the risk really that fucking high? Okay. Honestly, you can shove the most epic protective measures and still get hit badly. Recovery is where it's at. Fail fast. Recover even faster in a perfect world. I really like this guy. I don't know who it is. I wish you would use like a real name, but I definitely like this dude or guy or gal, whoever it is. Put in reasonable controls and countermeasures based on the business risk, then monitoring the effectiveness of those controls, kind of like an OE. That's what we do. What we do is we use a tool that leverages machine learning to find patterns in attacks. And then it reports the risks to us. And we're and all we do is try to make ourselves aware of the people who are trying to find out if we're stupid and exposed. But we don't do that at the cost of innovation. Uh, and then Sir Now Mike responded. Okay. And I, I really like Mike's follow-up. So Mike Sir Now said, I need to elaborate more on my initial comment from a few days ago. He said, I think there's a different in viewpoints here regarding security and OT systems. I agree that cybersecurity is to be tackled on day one. Now, what I would say is this, of course, Mike would agree it needs to be tackled on day one. Mike does security, right? So what I would say is that the problem doesn't have to be solved on day one, but a guy like Mike needs to be on your team from day one. That voice needs to be there. The problem is, is that Mike's voice, Mike Cernow's voice, other security professionals' voices, IT professionals' voices are too loud. They have too, mu too much of an ability 
to stymie, stifle, or full wholesale obstruct innovation. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that guidance from the top needs to be service first, data enablement, service and data enablement to innovation, security and compliance second. Right now, the way the environment is such that if Mike Cernow is on your team and he says, we have a, a risk here, I didn't measure what the risk is, but there's a risk. And because I said the word risk, we, we're not going to do anything. Okay. So, but I would argue, Mike, obviously, Mike's a, a security professional. This is what he does. So, of course, he's going to say we need to do it from day one. What I'm saying is, is that Mike should be on the team from day one. We should be hearing his voice from day one, but it should be a consideration like, just like um, I'm considering cost on a, on a software platform. That's it. It shouldn't, Mike shouldn't have the ability, the security guy shouldn't have the ability to stop innovation in the name of security. He should be tasked with enabling innovation by making things secure. They're, and they're, they're completely different things, concepts, mindsets, right? So he said, so I designed cybersecurity architecture in critical infrastructure and civil engineering projects where basically I determined what cybersecurity has to look like for let's say a rail traction power substation and a state DOT's electric vehicle charging infrastructure, water treatment facilities, et cetera. My goal from the very beginning is to always figure out how the physical side of things can either cause damage or cause loss of life. So he's really focused on how uh, being insecure, an insecure intrusion or an intrusion through insecurity to an OT system that causes physical movement could either cause damage that is something could break uh you know i could make this train run into that train boom boom or someone could die i could kill someone that's what he's talking about that which by the way he should be doing and then he works back from there i'm saying that no you should start from the the premise the foundation should be innovation is the priority and we're going to work forward from there. We're not going to start with security and work back. Why? Because if we do that, we're making security the priority. I mean, what is security? Somebody tell me. Don't Google it. What is security? Doug Albright, I'm going into a meeting soon to discuss uh, row level security and Sarbanes-Oxley. Based on what I know, I'm arguing that UNS can support two-day visibility for everyone. I'm interested in hearing more. Yes, Doug, it can. Um, UNS can definitely support two-day visibility for everyone. For those of you that don't know Sarbanes-Oxley, it's a, a law here in the United States that um, Sarbanes-Oxley is really the reason why um, ERP data is segmented from the rest of your, your network. It basically has to do with protecting data that can be used to manipulate markets, market stock, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, Annabelle Velarde, security. Don't do something stupid on purpose. I'm going to tell you something that you guys don't want to hear about security. And Josh is right. Security is whichever measures you have to take to feel like you're protected. Feel like you're protected. You don't fucking measure security. You're not measuring it. Yes, Omar. Security is an illusion. For some people, having six police... I live in um, Farmer's Branch, Texas. So we have 100,000. It's in North Dallas. Got 100,000 people or give or take. I don't know. Josh can tell me what the population is. But our offices are based here, are in Carrollton, Texas. They're right next to each other. Farmer's Branch, Carrollton. I think we got... At any given time, we have six patrol officers um, patrolling around Farmer's Branch. Okay. Those police officers are there to serve and protect the community of 100,000. Okay, you got six officers to protect 100,000 people. But if I wanted to go and hurt somebody, rob someone, you know, do hurt somebody, could I easily do that? Yes. Easily. I could literally go to the office next door. I could literally walk out, go over to the office next door. So does that mean, are they secure? No. They're not secure at all. They might say they are. Hey, we have pretty low crime here. Well, that doesn't mean you're secure. Security is what you think, what makes you feel like you are safe. And it's the same thing in industry. That doesn't mean security is not important. But I mean, come on, how many of you experience irrational reactions from members in security or IT departments over what amounts to really basic, simple requests, irrational reactions? I remember the first time you wanted to remote into an HMI. Remember the first time that you wanted to use that VNC feature on a, uh, a view panel. A panel view plus the first time you wanted to use that and you said that you needed remote access through export okay the the reaction of the it person when you at, requested that i mean all you controls guys i know you went through this i went through it the first time you were like i want to remote into control logics from home so that i can troubleshoot something. I don't want, I, you know, when I worked at Newcore Steel and, you know, we had to have, an, we had to have uh, controls guys 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, not all controls guys are made, um, are made equal. So there were problems that they used to have in the steel, steel uh, rolling mill that only I could solve, or they had problems that only Kevin Mahoney could solve with the DCS, Right. I lived in over an hour away. And the idea that I was going to like drive an hour to do five minutes of troubleshooting was fucking absurd. Thank you, Josh. 180,000 people. We got six officers on 
Are we really secure? No, of course not. It's a perception of security. And it's important to keep that in mind. IT departments treat security like it's an absolute thing. Michael Brown, yes, 1200 baud modem. Um, Annabelle Velarde, in some organizations, that irrationality is codified in the SecOps mandates. Exactly. Again, I don't, I don't want to, you know, this is a tirade that we could have for hours and hours and hours, but I want to make sure that the messaging is absolutely clear here. Okay. I'm not saying that security sh should be reserved to only critical infrastructure. What I'm saying is, is that security should never be the excuse not to innovate. However, in critical infrastructure, security can be the reason to pause innovation so that we innovate first and then we figure out how to secure and then we apply the innovation. But you should never, 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 never use security as the reason not to innovate. So when someone is talking about Industry 4.0 and about how one of the most important things about Industry 4.0 is implementation of cybersecurity, that is horseshit. I disagree. Cybersecurity is not a priority, okay? It is an application on top of the priority, which is innovation. Paul Kopchak, they will not let us remote into the plastic blow mold machines, even though we just needed viewing capability and we're rarely writing updates to PLCs or industrial PCs. And think about the opportunity cost there. I mean, I, I have never seen, um, I'm trying to think, Um, if I've ever seen, I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody who is accessing remotely, um, you know, writing to an output that they shouldn't have wrote to or, um, yeah, Josh, good point. You can make the argument that U S government's the most secure organization on the planet and China and Russia have hacked us countless times. Agreed. What I'd say is innovate faster than they can learn how to hack. That's my argument. Um, but I want to I want to finish Mike's. I want to read his final point, which was my overall point I want to make is this critical infrastructure or not. If your processes have the possibility to make someone go ouchy or get unalive and you choose not to employ cybersecurity, then you're grossly negligible. I agree. I'm not proposing that you don't employ cybersecurity. What I'm saying is you don't prioritize it. You prioritize innovation, then you secure it. But that isn't the reality on the floor right now. The reality on the floor is we are foregoing innovation in the name of security. And if I'm wrong, somebody fucking tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong that we are not, that organizations are not using security as an excuse not to innovate. They may not be doing it. Um, they may not, may not be codifying it in some statement or memo from the chief executive, but that's exactly what they're doing in practice. And it's because the messaging from leadership isn't clear. That IT is a service organization first and a security organization second. And that data enablement is the priority. Innovation is the priority. Tell me I'm wrong. And then one last thing I want to go over, one other comment here. And Josh, if there were any other questions I should answer, please make sure you point them out. But um, on the um, the pharma video, you know, why is it that engineers hate life sciences? 
Um, I got a lot of feedback on this. Basically, everyone agreed with me. There were only a couple of people who even remotely disagreed. I would have seriously questioned someone's credentials if they disagreed with me there. I got to be honest with you. But uh, there was this guy, M Recorder One, who just posted this comment. I want to I want to go over it. He said, hey, very interesting video. I think I only partially agree with a few of your conclusions that you presented about the health domain, however. So number one, he agrees that health and regulations are dry as dry can get in software development. You do not code with modern technology, but you mainly recycle old stuff that already has been validated and iterate on that. Sort of the logic is that there's no chance to use anything newer than Windows XP because back in 2000, we validated Windows XP for $3 billion. And so you do not get to use Linux or Windows Vista for your product. Yuck, right? Number two, because of point one, I would claim that pretty much only health and pharma software engineers are actual engineers. Interesting. So in no other branch of software development, the regulations are so strict because you could kill someone. Nobody in the software engineering world except for health has to present proofs of fitness for purpose of their products. So you read the standard end user license agreements. Pretty much everything comes without warranty except in health. Pharma and health has actual liabilities here. 100% respect for that. Agreed. But remember, my premise was the best engineers in the world don't want to work in life sciences. And, and the reason why is because the best engineers in the world want to work on bleeding edge technology. They want to solve fucking problems. They don't, yeah, I, I don't want to be restricted for 10 years. I don't want in 10 years my accomplishments to be equivalent to what my college buddy achieved in his first 12 months working in a completely different industry. There is a price we all pay in cost of drugs, quality of drugs, um, co cost of drugs, quality of drugs, and health and beauty items because the nature of working in life sciences. Okay? What, what the nature, the best and the brightest don't stay in life sciences. Full stop. Okay. Number three, uh, he use, uh, he tags the four minute 50 second mark and he says, the Google, Tesla, whatever developer being way ahead of the curve, that might technologically be the case, which, so he's conceding the only point that matters. Okay. So I don't know why I would even read the rest of it, but uh, he says that might technologically be the case. But if you really immerse yourself in the health field, you will get certifications and responsibilities that no one in Google, Tesla, whatever has at the moment. And that those, those uh, certifications and responsibilities only apply to life sciences where the, those people don't want to work to begin with. The ways of working um, are very different for a reason. Yeah, barrier and entry. Uh, prove me wrong. Why is it that we make life sciences so difficult in the United States? Is it really because we, tr pharmaceutical companies can't be trusted to make their drugs safely? We can argue whether or not that drug, we can argue whether or not that drug is something I should take, that a doctor's prescribing it to me, whether or not I really need it. But 
do you really think that life sciences companies are in the business of making drugs so poorly they're going to fucking kill you? And why is and, and we take we eat a lot more food than we take drugs. Okay? And yet we have much looser restrictions in food and beverage than we do in life sciences. Life sciences are let's not let's not fucking kid ourselves. Life sciences are as restrictive as they are for barrier to entry in the United States to make it really, really, really hard to compete against pharmaceutical companies. Let's not kid ourselves. Okay. Um, but I, your point is taken here. I don't, I don't want to diminish what you're saying, but you know, you're really, this is lipstick on a pig. The number, the number three point here. Um, the ways of working are very different for a reason. Tracking mistakes to their roots is ingrained in the workflow in health to prevent mistakes where possible or to be able to explain mistakes should they happen. Mistakes might include dead people here. Yep. And mistakes might include dead people if you make bad rebar and mistakes might include dead people if you make a shitty car and they might include dead people if you ship contaminated beef. But yet the restrictions are not commensurate. The regulations aren't commensurate okay i would argue you sort of see this nowadays in the open with the developments of self-driving cars i get the feeling that tesla and company are more trying to circumvent existing regulations than implement them because i think they're incapable to do so and also do not want to pay the amount of money to do this yes barrier to entry google participates and is good in medical field ai tasks but has zero health products on the market okay Agile development, exciting new technologies are not the bread and butter of the health domain, but they better be. Uh, certification, documentation, and proven technologies are. If you are good and methodological, you can make a fortune on health, but well, that is not something for the developer who wants to use the stylish new technology XYZ, and you probably will never ever migrate to working at Tesla and company because your CV will look a lot different from when the people in those companies are looking for. What are people in Tesla looking for? It's a good point. What are they looking for? It's not your fucking resume. Yes. Pharma industry in the United States is textbook oligopoly. We drink a lot more water than food, Lee Taylor. Amen. Hey, by the way, I would argue water wastewater is one of the most <laughs> poorly regulated in terms of practice in the OT. Okay poorly regulated and most susceptible to intrusion of any market uh, in the United States. I laugh when I go to water wastewater facilities. Okay. Agreed, Annabelle Velarde. The number one job should be unlocking potential on the plant floor through innovation. What does Tesla look for? Does it does Tesla look for specific degrees? Do they look for specific experience? No. Elon Musk tells you this. Elon's looking for traits. Specific traits. Okay. The European Commission estimates that adverse reactions from prescription drugs cause 200,000 deaths. So together, about 328,000 patients in the U.S., uh, and Europe die from prescription drugs each year. And do you know why? That's because the doctors who are prescribing those drugs are mixing the wrong drugs together. It's not because of the way the drugs are being manufactured. 
It's not manufacturing problems, Tomas. It's Dr. A and Dr. B. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, and they prescribe two drugs that don't go well together. What's the solution to that? Centralized digital health records. How many of you, yeah, how many people use, use doctors who are digitally transformed? I mean, I literally had to take carry a fucking disc of my MRI to the orthopedic surgeon. Why? If 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 my if my disc of my MRI lives in the cloud, why is it I just can't give permission one time? Just by virtue of me going to that orthopedic surgeon. Why can't they just know that I'm physically in the room? Therefore, this orthopedic surgeon should have access to my orthopedic scans through my smartphone. Why can't they send me a text message to verify if this is my me and hey, you're in the you I've opted in to let them know that I'm I'm literally in the building. Why can't they why can't we do it that way? So to, to, to point out Tomas's problem, yes, I'm going to argue that you just made the argument for why life sciences needs to digitally transform much faster. Uh, let's talk about JA real quick, and then we'll get out of here. Walker, any opinion on Rockwell's upcoming factory talk hub for OEM, supposed to support MQTT to cloud-based brokers, going to be their central piece at Automation Fair? Um, so my opinion is I am doing a review, okay? My opinion is I... Um, I'm going in skeptical, but with an open mind. I'm going in skeptical. I want to see where their restrictions are. What I'll say is this. Um, there's a blog post I did, uh, fuck, like in 2016. I, I went to Automation Fair like in 2016 and wrote, Rockwell will come around. They'll have to, or they'll be dead. And I think it's ironic that it's taken them six years to just get to this point. when. The technology that is in Factory Talk Hub, okay, is technology they could have implemented into the Factory Talk Innovation Suite, the original version, in basically 72 hours. Why did it take six years? That's my first response. It's a good start, Jay, is my answer. But I'm going in a little skeptical. I want to see where the restrictions are. All right. Um, that's, I think I covered everything. Uh, listen, um, you know, hopefully the security discussion wasn't dry. This is an important, really, really, really important discussion. Okay. And I want to make sure no one gets it twisted. Um, the, well, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I thought Rockwell was going to, JA. So JA wrote, if Rockwell could have bought someone who was already doing this for a decent price, they would have done it before six years. Hopefully it'll be better than the edge gateway. Okay, I'll, I'll be totally frank with you. I thought they were going to do that with Litmus Automation. I believe they were going to use Litmus to, to basically buy that solution. And I don't understand why they didn't. Okay. Um, next week, I'm going to talk about the... Uh, yeah, uh, by the way, part of the reason I'm not huge on the Sesame thing, um, I like Sesame a lot, um, but I... I did not throw my my weight behind Sesame. It's because it was pretty clear to me that that Rockwell 
says me thing was going to happen and anything Rockwell puts their hands on turns to shit. So if I were the says me guys, I would have been like, no, thanks. We don't want that connection. So I kind of question, you know, Rockwell hasn't changed their, their philosophy in terms of they want to own the whole stack. None of that's changed. So, um, anyway, uh, Thank you guys for watching. Please, for those of you on YouTube, please like, subscribe, comment on the video. I can't wait to hear the feedback on this one. I will follow up next week. Hey, next week I am going to talk a little bit about the Hitachi uh, Flexware Innovation acquisition. Um, I'm going to tell you my story, my Flexware Innovation story, um, and sort of kind of outline how um, you know we actively try to change the way integrators operate. So um, if those of you that didn't see that, Hitachi did an acquisition of Flexware Innovation uh, integrator based out of Indianapolis. That's really tightly connected to Purdue University. I'm going to talk a little bit about that next week. Anyway, thanks, you guys, for watching, and we'll see you next time.